When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Democracy is at stake, and we have to have alliances of people that strongly disagree on everything but that fact. Inflation's not going to be a problem. Inflation will moderate. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. It would be insanity if the Democrats don't do something on Build Back Better. Pennsylvania, one of the closest states in the 2020 election, will be critical for deciding which party controls the Senate after 2022. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The water's getting hot, but the pot has not boiled over yet. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. With an eye still on Russia and Ukraine, we have news from Washington, where President Biden is weighing in today on sanctions and the possible use of force. Some impromptu comments, and we'll have them for you. We'll talk about the way forward as well with Congressman Sean Caston, Democrat from Illinois. Also introducing legislation now to ban members of Congress from trading stocks. A bit of a movement lately on Capitol Hill. He'll have details for us. And later, as this week's Fed meeting gets underway and a big decision ready for tomorrow, we'll talk about it with Columbia Law Professor Catherine Judge. And we'll get insights, of course, from the panel, our signature panel in place today, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with analysis on Russia, Ukraine, the Fed and the future of the Biden agenda. The president left the mansion today, went out for a little ice cream after visiting a local small business called Honey Made. Get ready for more of that kind of stuff. Quick shot from the White House. Talked to a local entrepreneur about building back better. Spent a little time talking with the White House pool, though, the reporters who travel everywhere the president goes. Of course, the questions were all about Ukraine and Russia. And President Biden made news on a couple of fronts. Here he is. I was... Watching one of you on television pointing out the fact that uh, I think you got it right, whoever it was. I'm embarrassed. I don't remember who. Saying that this is all Putin. I don't think even his people know for certain what he's going to do. Would you ever see yourself personally sanctioning him if he did invade Ukraine? Yes. Yes. I would see that. Personally sanctioning Vladimir Putin. The president was also asked about deploying troops. Now that we know the Pentagon, as we told you this time yesterday, has 8,500 of them standing by, here's what the president said about that. We have no intention of putting American forces or NATO forces in Ukraine. But uh, as I said, there are going to be serious economic consequences if he moves. The president going on to say that a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be the biggest the world has seen since World War II. 
Let's bring in Congressman Sean Caston, Democrat from Illinois, who serves on the House Financial Services Committee. We want to touch on a couple of items. Congressman, welcome back. I want to ask you about your legislation to ban members from trading stocks. But first, what are your thoughts on Russia today and Ukraine? Should Congress pursue legislation to authorize the use of force before we go any further here? Um, I think it's important for us to have every tool in our arsenal as quickly as possible. Um, Putin has made it very clear that he wants to reunite the Soviet Union and that he is uh, <clears throat> not ethically constrained. Um, our friends in Ukraine are um, are still seething at what Russia did in Crimea, and I think it's important for us to send a strong signal that military action, sanctions action, will be on the table, and we need to make it very clear to Putin that his smartest next move is to back down off this um, this adventure he's currently on. Well, I know sanctions are a big part of this conversation, and there is legislation uh, that's in the works, at least, on Capitol Hill. The Treasury has its own side of this. Uh, but, Congressman, you know, we keep hearing that, that, that there are going to be these brutal sanctions. They're going to be the worst we ever felt. The president just now talking about personally sanctioning Vladimir Putin. But are both sides of the aisle on board with this? Will there be legislation with bipartisan support? Um, I would hope so, but the important thing for us is to do what's right. I mean, look, we're, we're not that far away from a number of my colleagues across the aisle thinking that it was more important to withhold military aid to our allies in Ukraine than to stand up to Donald Trump. And so I am not going to speculate on where their morals are on this issue, mm. but, but, let's, but let's be very clear. A military concentration, a military confrontation, confrontation yeah. in Eastern Europe um, is not a good thing. And if any of my colleagues on either side of the aisle don't understand that, I would encourage them to go back and read their ninth grade social studies text. <laughs> well, you know, they would also read that Congress uh, has a say in this. And I just wonder before <laughs> troops are potentially sent overseas if that should be, you know, written in legislation with an authorization. Well, I think there's one set of questions around engaging in an act of war, which is clearly a congressional um, matter. There's a separate question about our obligations under NATO. What we're talking about right now is putting, um, you know, putting defensive weapons in place, putting defensive troops in place, and 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 not not declaring war, but making it clear to Putin that there are consequences if he crosses a line. The president was asked in that conversation, Congressman. You might have heard it. Uh, by our own Josh Wingrove, our White House correspondent, who was who was on that jaunt to uh, the local business, if we're growing closer to war, or if there's a standoff, a real status quo here, do you have a feel for that, Congressman? Are the drums beating louder today than they were over the weekend? I think the wild card that all of us struggle with is what is in Putin's mind. This is this is not a man who generally engages in strategies as much as he engages in 200 tactics at once to see what works. Huh. And so I think diplomatically, the important thing for us is to make it clear to him that this particular tactic is a bad idea. Um, and it's and it's none of us none of us want this to escalate. Least of all our friends in Ukraine. Um, but but I think given his behavior in Crimea, in Georgia, and other parts of the Baltic states, I think we have too much recent evidence with what happens if he thinks he can get away with moving a little bit farther. Talking with Congressman Sean Caston on Bloomberg Sound On. The biggest issue for you right now is stock trading by members of Congress, at least in terms of the legislation that you're writing, Congressman. I'd like to ask you about this because we've had several of them uh, over past months. You believe that House members, members of the Senate, 
congressional elected officials should not be allowed to trade stocks at all? Is that any individual security? What does your bill say? Um, so this is a bill that I'm a co-sponsor of with Congressman Krishnamurthy, the Banned Conflicted Trading Act. And what we say is that members of Congress and senior staff should be banned from buying and selling individual stocks mm-hmm. and from serving on any corporate boards. And, you know, the logic for this, number one, is twofold. I spent 16 years as a CEO. We worked really hard to make sure that all of our employees had access to a good 401k. And I, I would have thrown an investment advisor out of the room if they came in and said, told my employees that it was in their interest to day trade. Right? You know, we all know that there are a tiny number of people, most of them named Warren Buffett, who can consistently beat the market. The rest of us should be in index funds and mutual funds. Huh. When you look at the financial performance of the investments by members of Congress, it turns out they do really well. Uh-huh. And you have to ask yourself, do you think members of Congress are smarter than the average Wall Street trader, or right. do they have access to inside information? I just thought they were and, reading Bloomberg. Well, <laughs> <laughs> of course, but there is that. But I think, you know, we, we do know things before. You know, we know when we're about to, you know, unleash massive amounts of money into, you know, you know, antiviral therapies or, or, or vaccines. We know when we're about to make, you know, major investments that will affect the defense industry. And the, you know, if you're behaving ethically, put your money in an, in an you know, in an, in an index fund, in sure. sort of a mutual fund. But number two, there's a, when people perceive that members of Congress are not behaving ethically, mm-hmm. it lowers the respect for the entire government, even if Certainly. it's just a tiny number of bad apples. And, you know, our founders created a government that depends on the consent of the governed. And I think we jeopardize that at our peril. So well, I'll tell you, this seems to be one of the real bipartisan good. issues on Capitol Hill. My goodness, that when, when you look at some of the other versions, uh, some of the other bills that are seeking to do this, my gosh, Josh Hawley and John Ossoff don't tend to agree on a lot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look, they're all pursuing uh, this this same item that you are. Shouldn't you all get in a room and, and craft a big bill that could pass with bipartisan support? Yeah, I think right now the push is to try to really get, you know, get leadership of both parties in the page to bring this together. And and to be clear, there are some really tricky items um, that I think are unique to members of Congress that need to be thought with. You know, we, unlike the White House, you know, you know, most of us have spouses who are engaged in their lines of work, and some yeah. of us have spouses that are engaged in, in, you know, working in the markets. That's a little different, right? How do we think about that? What do we do for people who come in who own some stocks before? Should they be allowed to sell them? What do we do for illiquid securities mm-hmm. when a lot of members of Congress are you know, small business owners in their own right? And so I think we need to have a conversation. My personal feeling is that you know, the bill that, that, uh, you know, that I've co-sponsored with Congressman Krishnamurthy, Abigail Spanberger's bill, the, you know, the, the Hawley and Ossoff bill, these are yeah. all good starts. Yeah. But we really need to have the conversation, and let's let's get the committees to go through and go through regular order to think about how we work through these issues. And so we need a finer point on some of these, obviously. Are you concerned yeah, that Speaker Pelosi doesn't doesn't support this, Congressman? Um, I, I I'm I have every confidence that she'll listen to the arguments and think through it, and and we'll take it from there. You know, most of this conversation is happening right now in the media, which is. Hmm. which is not the most effective way to have these conversations, but I'm, but I'm sure I'm sure we'll get through them. Yeah, we'll keep talking about it till something happens, I guess. We only have a minute left, Congressman. I have to ask you as a member of Financial Services, uh, your thoughts on the Federal Reserve this week. Uh, it's a question I've been asking a lot of folks, and whether you're concerned as we enter now, I know we don't expect a hike tomorrow, but as we enter a tightening regime, if you're concerned about going too far, that we could slow the economy into a recession while we're at it. Um, 
I I will be interested to see what they say. You know, as we've looked at, at you know what's happening and why we're seeing some of the inflationary pressure in the economy right now, most of the data that we've seen is that this is overwhelmingly driven by supply constraints rather than overheating demand. Right? You know, we had a lack of semiconductors that drove up the price yeah. of cars. Um, and should they the hike in March, we, Congressman? I'm sorry, we're out of time. Well, well, the nervousness I have is that if it's a supply-driven constraint, we want to make sure that business have access to capital to invest. Right. If it's a demand-driven constraint, we want to raise interest rates and cool the economy. So don't go too far. Congressman Sean Kasten, thank you. Democrat from Illinois on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. There is so much good information about the Russia-Ukraine standoff on the terminal. The first thing I've been doing each day this week, type the letter N and the word Ukraine. You don't have to do any more than that. The Bloomberg Ukraine update will pop up. The headline right now, Biden says he might sanction Putin in attack. We played the cut for you beginning of the hour here. The president with reporters and a little jaunt outside the White House as he consider sanctioning Vladimir Putin in case Russia attacks Ukraine. Meanwhile, as I read... The Kremlin spokesman warns a U.S. move to put as many as 8,500 troops on alert, quote, exacerbates tensions. Let's exacerbate this more by assembling the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. Jeannie, interesting comments from the president today that he went so far as to say, following that word uh, from a Kremlin spokesman, that he had no interest in sending troops into Ukraine. He really tried to stop down and make, you know, to, to separate the idea of sending troops to Eastern Europe to reinforce, to defend our NATO allies, as opposed to crossing into Ukraine. Was it worth making that distinction? He did try to make that. It's something he has said before, but I thought it was the strongest statement to date that that is not on the table, at least at this point. But I think it does raise the larger question, which is, again, what is a unified NATO response going to look like and what would they respond to? Will they only respond if there is a direct invasion in Ukraine Mm -hmm. or are they going to respond if there are other types of milder incursions, which gets us back to the president's press conference? So I don't think 
think that that is very clear, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there isn't cohesive strategy or agreement coming out of our European allies, and that's really what the focus of Anthony Blinken and President Biden have got to be and have been. No boots on the ground at this point, but what do we do and when is still the big question. Rick, what do you make of this idea of uh, sanctioning Vladimir Putin personally? Didn't you actually ask for that to happen? Yes. Yes, I think that this is the issue. We've got to go after Putin and we go after where it hurts him. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I think the recommendations by a longtime Putin nemesis, Bill Browder, is a great idea, which is go after the oligarchs that are holding his cash. Mm -hmm. I mean, Putin's smart enough not to be exposed financially, but uh, he he suggests pick the top 20 oligarchs and <laughs> sanction five of them today. And, wow. and I agree. I mean, why aren't we sanctioning Russia today? I mean, they are destabilizing the entire free market economy around the world. They're destabilizing, uh, you know, social justice. Uh, they have hundreds of thousands of troops on a border of a sovereign nation. Yeah. What, why would we delay? This, this is a great question. I suspect you, you might have a suspected answer, though, Rick. Is it because we're afraid to provoke Vladimir Putin? Uh, you have to treat Putin like Putin treats the rest of the world. Yeah. He's provoking us. You have to provoke him back. I mean, like the reality is I, I can't tell you how many experts I have to listen to all day long who are saying, oh, it's a done deal. He's got to invade now. Well, it, you <laughs> know what? Make it cost him something. Right. I mean, and he only is going to invade in that it doesn't hurt him either financially or politically. And the other way to start going at him is to start sending messages into the Russian population that he's putting them at risk. And that's when he'll really start freaking out when he knows <laughs> that we're going to play politics in his own country. Is Rick in the right place on this, Genie? Why not sanction now? What are we actually waiting for? We could sanction now, and they are trying to run this sort of dual strategy, right? They're trying to make it clear that he will be hit back with sanctions and otherwise, to Rick's point, that could be now, it could be in the future. But they're also trying to offer him some kind of off-ramp. What can the West provide that he might be willing to use as sort of a face-saving mechanism, if you will? And let's not forget, there are other options at Putin's disposal. One of the things that's being talked about, he's talked about and other people have, does he put... Russian troops or forces in places in the West, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. Those are all options at his disposal. And we've got to have a response. And it's got to be a concerted allied response to all of these sort of tactics that he could use. So sure, sanction now, but you've got to offer him something to encourage him not to enter right before the Olympics or ever. Rick Bloomberg is reporting that Emmanuel Macron's Russia advisor is in Moscow right now to present uh, proposals for de-escalation. The new chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, will host Macron in Berlin this evening. Is this about to be, is this some sort of work around the United States that our European allies are in the middle of? You know, I don't think it's a work around the United States. I think that the United States has been pushing uh, Europe to get in the game, okay. right? It's one thing for, you know, Joe Biden to stand in a press conference and talk about how he's got a unified European approach. But it doesn't hurt us at all to have European turning the screws on. on Are they, I mean, though? Well, I mean, that's probably why Macron's going to Germany, yeah. because the one holdout uh, who's who's dependent upon Russian hydrocarbons is Germany. That's right. And Germany's withholding approval for certain weapon systems that are going into the Ukraine. And I'm sure this is one of the, the things that they're going to be talking about is let's release those things. Let's get defensive weapons into the Ukraine and let's talk about how we can satisfy your need for, car, you know, uh, hydrocarbons, oil and gas, uh, without having to bow, bow down to Vladimir Putin. 
We talked about this a bit yesterday, Jeannie. Does Emmanuel Macron have a dream of coming out of this victorious that he was the one who solved it? Oh, I'm sure he has that dream. I'm sure they all have that they, dream. They all do. But, but I would say, listen to the Ukrainian foreign minister today when he says this is about U.S. leadership. If U.S. leadership oh. fails here, it is going to be a message to our detractors, Democratic detractors around the world, not just Putin, but also China, as they look at lessons from this as to what they're going to do with Taiwan. And as we think about semiconductors, mm-hmm. that's a big issue for the United States for that reason and many others. I'm just struck by how much we have come to rely on the insights of Jeannie and Rick, and we're lucky to have them in moments like these. They'll be back later on this hour, our panel on Bloomberg Sound On. We turn to the Fed and inflation next. Meeting wraps tomorrow. We'll talk about it with Columbia Law Professor Catherine Judge. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Some really smart writing by our team at Bloomberg Intelligence. If you're preparing for the big results in the Fed meeting here. And to Charlie's point, we do love Fed Wednesdays around here at Bloomberg. Tomorrow's going to be a ride. As I see the headline, Federal Reserve to signal March hike, but not 50 basis points. Anna Wong, our chief economist, writing on the terminal where you can find a lot more. Let's bring in Catherine Judge, Columbia Law Professor, to talk a little bit more about what we expect here. Does that sound like the way this goes tomorrow, Catherine? And how important are the words that will be chosen in this statement? I suspect it's going to look quite different. It does sound quite likely, and again, I think I think people are going to be really trying to parse the statement. There is still the expectation they're going to want to complete the taper mm-hmm. before they raise rates, which would make them on track to do that in March, and there is an overall sense that they're going to want to do that incrementally, a quarter basis at, at each of their, their upcoming meetings in 22 for three or four rate hikes. Um, but we also are, are seeing three months in a row of, of higher than – uh, had been anticipated inflation. We're seeing a lot of public concern, and we have heard Chair Powell say numerous times that they're going to respond to to new data as it becomes available. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where we have a little bit of uncertainty over whether they might accelerate. So, do you expect to hear uh, specifics about the size of the hike in March? As, as we mentioned, they'll be kind of backing off from this fifty basis point view that some have been kind of hoping for. To be honest, but also emphasizing the uncertainty that we have here, the downside risks to growth. Exactly. I mean, I think what they are going to want to do is to convey to the markets, to convey more broadly to the American public mm-hmm. that they are aware of the, the, the pain that the inflation we've seen is causing, they are responsive to it, and that they are on top of it. At the same time, they want to retain some flexibility. So there's going to be this very difficult path of, of trying to, to create a soft landing here, and, and that does mean maintaining some flexibility to respond to new indicators while also trying to, to provide enough clarity uh, that they – they can calm rather than to panic sure. uh, those who are paying attention to those words. Now, that's what you think they're going to do, right, uh, as opposed to what you want them to do. <laughs> what do you make of the Bill Ackman view, the shock and awe, come on in there and surprise everybody in March and spook this market to get a hold of inflation? 
Of course. Well, I mean, I, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there, Bill Ackman among them, probably among the most vocal, mm-hmm. uh, taking that view. And I, I think the key is to remember the, the Fed has a number of ways of signaling that it, it understands the risks and that it's committed to tightening to the degree possible without necessarily doing a, a 50 basis point raise right in March. Uh, and that's where the communication strategy is going to be really important as well. Again, they, they, they want to make sure everybody knows they're taking inflation seriously, yeah. uh, but you don't want to induce a recession. You don't want to introduce too much fear or deviate too much from what folks are currently expecting. Let's rewind to the big confirmation hearing, the reconfirmation hearing to be exact of Jay Powell when he spoke to the, the, the effort to fight inflation. And we'll hear his words. Here's Jay Powell. Our policy has been adapting to this, um, you know, for some months. Uh, but will if 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 inflation is going to last longer, then that would that would potentially imply more risk of, of of its persistence and ultimately becoming entrenched. And and our policy will respond accordingly. So they're on this, Catherine. And I'm I'm thinking back to the old days, the Greenspan days. In fact, when was the last time? I think I know, by the way. And I'm it's making me feel pretty old. When was the last time we had a surprise hike? You know, we where you see the headline cross the terminal. Oh my God! It's not a Fed meeting. A surprise hike between meetings, wouldn't that do a number on inflation? Yeah, I was going to say no. But, but the between, as you well know, the between meeting changes either way are incredibly rare. Yeah. And the hike is actually a good question. I mean, the last time we saw the between meeting cut was, of course, in the, the lead up to the 2007-2008 financial crisis. So it was 2007 when they were actually trying to do the opposite. They were trying to, to, to protect kind of bank balance sheets from the, the unexpected dysfunction that we had seen in the market. But but the hike, I, I'm actually trying to, to jump <laughs> on the recollection. Sorry there. But, well, I mean, but wouldn't that be a mechanism? Are we out of that business now? The Fed is just in a different place when it comes to telegraphing its moves. I, I think it's in quite a different place. I think they, they really see communication policy as an iterative process. And, and part of what you heard in the clip that you just played from Powell was really an effort to, to engineer, as I said, a little bit of that flexibility to continue to respond to new information to show that they, they want to provide clear, uh, clear guidance at the same time they, they need flexibility because we don't have a, a roadmap for yeah. what this economic recovery is going to look like. And that's the, the balance that they are, they're trying to, to engineer right now. But on the whole, when we think back actually to Bernanke with the, the taper tantrum, mm-hmm. uh, we see that there's far more concern, far more attention to the fact that, that unexpected moves can also invite undesirable uh, disruptions. And so there's a, an effort here to, to telegraph as clearly as possible sure. while retaining at least some of the needed flexibility. Catherine, this is Bloomberg, but it's a political show, and we talk to politicians almost uh, on a daily basis here on Bloomberg Sound On. Inflation comes up almost every day. Republicans try to hang this around the president's neck, and officials from the White House come on and constantly refer to the Fed when we ask them about inflation. That there's, you know, we're so lucky to have an independent Fed, and we're not standing in their way. That's a lot of trust that they've put in the central bank here. Does the Fed deserve it? Will they make good on this without going too far, pushing us into a recession? I was going to say, to say that they, they trust, I think partly it's also the institutional design uh, sure, that, that we have collectively created over decades at this point of largely delegating 
the decisions regarding monetary policy, which are core to inflation, uh, to the Federal Reserve. I do think there is a separate political conversation happening where we're trying to understand more broadly what might be contributing to price increases that might be better addressed. Well, whether it's supply chains or COVID or something altogether different, we'll be talking a lot more about this tomorrow when we can actually parse those words as the professor mentioned. Thanks to Columbia Law Professor Catherine Judge. The panel's back next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The captains of industry are on their way back to the White House. You see the invite list? White House for tomorrow on the terminal? CEOs of GM and Ford, Mary Barra, Jim Farley, along with Mark Benioff, head of Salesforce.com, will be there along with executives from Microsoft, TIAA, all joining with the president, 10 of them in total, to make the case for Build Back Better. But Build Back Better died, you say. It's kind of like when the hand pops out of the water at the end of the horror movie. Maybe it's more like Monty Python. I'm not dead yet! As they try to figure out ways to get something out of Build Back Better. Maybe not the comprehensive bit, but slicing it into little pieces seems to be the direction we're going in here. Although these CEOs aren't slicing anything. They want to have billions of dollars to fight climate change and to social programs like child care and early education. Let's reassemble the panel, see how they feel about it. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Is this a good look? Does this work, Rick? This president has done this quite a number of times, bringing some very high-profile CEOs to the White House, sometimes virtually, to make the case for legislation that doesn't always go anywhere. Yeah, it is a funny contrast because a lot of his party, the Democratic Party in Congress, have taken an oath to sort of you know, go after all these big corporations. The larger the corporation, the bigger the enemy of the Democratic Party in Congress. <laughs> and they're all and so over. he wheels them all over the White House and makes them all very <laughs> uncomfortable because they want, they're out there attacking these guys, their corporate packages, all the you know money and stock that these CEOs get. And yet he's hobnobbing with them over in the White House saying, hey, support what I'm trying to do on the Hill. And so it, it does create a bit of a, uh, a counter to the messaging that you hear mm-hmm. off the Capitol Hill. But let me tell you, when the president opens up the White House, that's what matters. Yeah 
not what they're belly aching about on Capitol Hill. <laughs> Does it work though, Jeannie? I guess is the point. Even if there there might be a couple of questions, like Rick is asking, and if you're going to break these companies up or use them to pass your bill, which is it? Well, you know, one name left off this list is, of course, Joe Manchin, because nothing is going to happen on Build Back Better without Joe mm-hmm. Manchin there. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the the president has, has, you know, in a bit of a predicament here because he said last week he doesn't want to be seen as a senator in chief anymore. He wants yeah. to be seen as president. He's trying to do that. But the focus is a bill that has to go through Congress, and that means has to go through Joe Manchin. So it's a bit of a conundrum for the president in that regard. I think this is what he wants to be talking about. I wish he would talk more about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. He's been trying to do some of that and tout that achievement because it is big. It's a huge investment. But I do think this is still, for Build Back Better, a very uphill battle. Maybe they get one part of it, but that's a big maybe. And that's going to take Chuck Schumer maybe seeking some, you know, you know, seeking some, I don't know, some forgiveness, if you will, from Joe Manchin and uh, trying to get back on the, the, you know, on his good side and see if they can move forward on that. Well, I would certainly understand Mary Barra, Jim Farley showing up to talk about the CHIPS Act, right? That helps their business directly. Just getting back to your point, uh, Rick, are are they are they trying to to take care of their own interests, to to make friends with the administration, to be friendly on this type of legislation and, and prevent a crackdown or, you know, look, it's good to have friends in Washington. Or do they really believe in this, that fighting climate change will help their businesses? Well, I think they see it all as good cover, right? Regardless of their actual personal views about climate and about the social safety net, um, these are positive things for the company to do for their own brands. And so I think that that probably drives a lot of it. But like, what happens when uh, an enterprising Bloomberg reporter sticks a camera and a microphone in front of their face and say, hey, I thought you guys were opposed to the way they were going to pay for Build Back Better by raising corporate tax rates and creating a minimum tax on profits. Why are you at the White House promoting something you actually oppose the revenue to pay for it? (laughs) What would the answer be, Jeannie? You know, I don't think that I think that they would say we are supportive and we will look for alternatives. I think they would work around it. But it is a point well taken because they certainly don't want to see the corporate taxes and raised, nor do they want to see taxes on wealthy people raised, quite frankly. So it is a conundrum. But again, you have a massive infusion of cash into infrastructure already. That's been done. That is good for business. It is good for everybody in the United States. And that has got to be something that the White House celebrates. I mentioned the Competition and Innovation Act. I believe that's the actual name of it. USICA is what we have come to call it uh, here in, well, there in Washington. I'm speaking to you from New York. Uh, this is actually something that that has fairly broad bipartisan support, right? Not just competing with China, but passing the CHIPS Act that is in this $52 billion to help uh, promote domestic manufacturing of computer chips. If this passes, we saw the House release its version today. It's already gone through the Senate. If this passes, Rick, is is this at the level that the president needs to take victory, to, to, to get credit for getting something done in Washington? Yeah, I think he needs a win. Uh, I think this is the shortest route to getting a win on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, I'm Even not if sure. it's not trillions of dollars, though. It doesn't this have would... to be trillions of dollars. This is one that he will get in a bipartisan fashion. Mm-hmm. It passed the Senate in a bipartisan fashion. If it's going to pass the House, there'll be Republicans that support it. And, and, and I think this is a message to, to Joe Biden, the moderate bipartisan president who is getting things done when he can find a bipartisan pathway to doing it. When he's tried to jam things through on a 
on a party line basis only. That's what's hung him up on the Hill. So I, I think it's a great trend back to the center. Uh, and, and it's one of those things, China competitiveness, that uh, both Republicans and Democrats can join together. And I think it's a good way to reboot this administration's Hill strategy after all the failures of last yeah. year. It comes on the same day, uh, Jeannie, that the administration warned us that the computer chip shortage is going to last likely all the way through the year. There was a thought that this might start to loosen up halfway through the year, but Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, uh, says no, this is likely to be a 2022 story. So do they need to pass that now? They, they do need to pass it. And I think the big question here, I think, is also politically smart, because I do think it puts Republicans in a bit of a predicament. They are supportive of this. When it, when Yusika passed the Senate, it did with a big bipartisan vote. Yeah. But the question now is, will Republicans help on a deal and let Biden and the Democrats get something done as we get closer to a midterm election? So I think it is good politics for Biden and the Democrats to push for this, because it puts Republicans in a position of either having to go along with it and give them a win or it puts them in a position of having to say no either way that's good for democrats and it's good for competition well let's get to the fed in our remaining moments here your expectations for tomorrow and i am we're getting to this differently than than some other bloomberg programs do because we're the political side of this rick do you have a sense of what that statement should say to help the biden administration get around this inflation issue to give people confidence that the fed is on it but it also isn't about to run the economy into the dirt. Yeah, I think that um, if the Fed um, uh, could somehow make a point that um, their fight against inflation is more important to them than worrying about Omicron, because I think one of the things that the public has gotten used to is that people will do dramatic things on the fight against this pandemic, um, and sometimes at the detriment of the economy. And I think most voters I certainly see in the polling data want to see the economy be the priority. They're already moving beyond Omicron as a problem in society. And so I think that is a big pivot that the Fed could say, you know what, we're focused on inflation. We're going to fight this thing. Um, we're going to make sure that, 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 that we do what we need to do. And, and we're going to let kind of the Omicron chips fall where they may. And I think that's a, that's a really important signal. The, the, the COVID caveat uh, has gotten them pretty far here, Jeannie. They've been actually complimented for helping the country. Jay Powell specifically in his reconfirmation hearing complimented repeatedly by lawmakers for helping the country navigate the pandemic. Is it time for them to turn away from it? They do deserve all of that praise because they did, a, you know, a, a place where there's really not a, a big roadmap as to how you do this. They did move us through it. But I think what they have to do is they have to let people know that they understand how difficult this is. They're ready to respond to it. But they also have to be careful because you never know if there is going to be another wave of this pandemic. So they've got to maintain for themselves the ability to respond. God forbid there is another deadly variant out there. We hope we're at the end of this, but we don't know that yet. So I think they have to sort of run that tightrope as we go forward of responsiveness, action, but also leaving themselves room to maneuver should they need to going forward. What's the Republican position on that? What's the message then, Rick? If, if there's a convincing statement, let's say the market reacts pretty well. Maybe Joe Biden says a couple of good things. We're getting inflation under control or arms around it. Do the Republicans keep beating the drum on this issue? 
Yeah, I think the Republicans see this as an incredibly uh, important gift politically uh, that uh, Democrats are in a trap around inflation. They're, they're all for the Fed doing something to improve it, but they're not going to let go of it. And they'll drive this all the way down to November's election because it's unlikely that we're going to have a clear victory against inflation by the time those elections take place. Why are Democrats in a trap if this is supposedly a global issue? Is it simply because they run the town? Absolutely. When you are have the White House and Congress and there is high inflation, it is a disaster for the party in charge. And we all mm. know that. So their best hope at this point is to see if that can be curbed before they get into November and hope that Donald Trump is front and center on everybody's minds when they go into the polls. They'll probably still lose a bunch of seats that way, but far better than if those two things don't happen. Our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Chanzano and Rick Davis. Get you all set up for whatever in the world is going to happen tomorrow on the political front and on the Fed front. We thank both of you as always, and we'll compare notes this time tomorrow on what we learned. Be sure to hear our Fed coverage on our Fed Wednesday, as Charlie Pellet mentioned, starts at 1.30 New York time right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.